I experienced a lot of competition within the photography world, yes, but I think also just more maybe in a comparison aspect within the small business world. So, you know, the literal competition of a client's going to book one of us, right? And that fear, that scarcity mindset of, well, if it's not me, it's you. And then if I'm not winning, I'm losing. And I mean, I've become a huge, huge, huge advocate for healthy competition, like saying, yes, community over competition, but it doesn't mean we're not going to compete. We are going to compete, but there's a way to do it in a healthy way. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde, your host and resident storyteller, and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success, and my hope, as always, is that you leave the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. All right, friends, I hope you're having a great week. I see we have some new listeners, so welcome. Thank you for being here. And if you are enjoying this content, I do want to remind you to leave a review. There's a link in the show notes that will take you right to the review page. Very simple. It helps others find the show and it also helps me. So thank you. I am just so excited about this week's guest. We have Natalie Frank. She's just inspiring. She's very wise. We were instant friends and Natalie and I, we just had such a good conversation. In fact, it was so good. I had to make it a two-part conversation. So this is part one. And before we get to our conversation, I'll tell you a little bit more about Natalie. So Natalie Frank is a best-selling author, community builder, neuroscience nerd, and mama bear for small business. And in the last decade, she founded multiple companies, wrote two books, cultivated a global community, and empowered tens of thousands of independent business owners to rise together doing what they love. Her global community for independent business owners, the Rising Tide Society, was acquired by HoneyBook, and Natalie worked as the chief evangelist at HoneyBook for several years. Now she is the head of community at Flowdesk, where she empowers business owners around the world. And Natalie is also married to her high school sweetheart. You know I love love, so I had to get that story. And they have two children. She recently published her second book, Gutsy. And whether you're struggling to get started, a of making a big decision or clinging to a path no longer meant for you, this book is the kick in the pants you need to take the next step and go after what you want. Gutsy is your guidebook to uncovering the audacious courage within you and making an impact on this world that only you can make. And Natalie is certainly a reflection of what it means to be gutsy. I can't wait for you all to hear this conversation, so let's get to it. Right, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on No Straight Path. I just love your story and I'm excited to dig more into it. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's do it. I'm excited too. Absolutely. So I'm so curious. I know a little bit about you, but I'm just so curious about the beginning. So let's talk about your childhood. Tell us about how you grew up. Tell us about little Natalie. Are we seeing a little bit of little Natalie and the work that you're doing today? Yes. Little Natalie was nerdy. She was compassionate, empathetic, sweet, loved books, 
loved fantasy books, loved science, and raised by a single mom in a small little coastal town of Annapolis, Maryland. We're nestled right on the Chesapeake Bay between the bigger cities of D.C. and Baltimore. And I grew up a very typical firstborn daughter trying to never break a rule, get a straight A anytime that I could. Like I said, a giant nerd. And it wasn't until I was entering my teen years that the potential paths for me sort of opened up and shifted in the sense that I think I spent most of my life with my mom and others encouraging me you know, to follow a very traditional corporate path go to college, the best one you can, get a job, the best one you can, climb a career ladder and keep climbing was sort of drilled into me without being spoken overtly. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I started shampooing hair at a local hair salon. And that was the moment, oddly enough for me, that was the moment that my mind was really opened to a multitude of possibilities for my future. Just seeing women in particular as hairstylists, running their own client book, you know, having their own micro business within a business, doing something outside of a cubicle that really made me question the path that I thought for most of my life I would follow. Wow. That's so interesting because when I was getting my hair done, I was just thinking about my hair and (laughs) (laughs) I was doing my homework. I was putting my head down. I wasn't really even paying attention to the surroundings, but how that is actually a business and they're often female-run businesses. And that's actually a lot of our first introductions to entrepreneurship, which is so interesting, which I hadn't thought about. And I just love how you had this curious mind and that opened your eyes up to something else that was different. So when you went to college, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur then? It's a great question. So between the sophomore year of high school and graduating high school, a lot also occurred. So I'm shampooing hair every day after school and on the weekends to make ends meet to help my family and and make some extra money. And while I'm doing that, I also was struggling quite a bit with anxiety and depression, especially into junior year. It was a really hard season for me. I feel like for a lot of folks, high school in general can be a really hard transitional season. And so I was struggling a lot with my mental health. And in that time, my mom actually bought me a camera. And so I started experimenting with photography And I think it was my version. It was like discovering entrepreneurship 2.0. So first it was, wow, there are women who make six figures a year, you know, in the beauty industry, doing hair. They're making an amazing wage. They have clients they love. They get to choose who they work with. I didn't know this was possible to getting a camera in my hands and it really being healing for me on a mental health perspective, art therapy in that sense, but then also being maybe, well, this could be my way of pursuing this. I'm not actually great with doing my hair. I probably can't make a living shampooing hair. I would have to become an artist. And I always remember thinking like, I can't paint. I can't draw. I have not the best handwriting you've ever seen. Oh, but a camera. A camera doesn't require me to have that you know, hand-eye coordination dexterity. I can still create something that matters. And so I picked up that camera and again, started personal use. And then by my senior year, I was photographing senior portraits and friends. I was assisting other photographers locally. I was carrying camera bags for wedding professionals by the time that I graduated. And so did I go to college? Yes. I went to UPenn. I majored in visual studies with a focus in the science of seeing. So I studied neuroscience, psychology, a little bit of philosophy, and a lot of the visual system is really what I studied at Penn. 
But I had already picked up the camera. And so when I entered college, I think in that moment, it was more of a side hustle. There was an undercurrent of an aspiration that maybe one day I would be my own boss. Maybe one day photography could be something more than a side hustle. But while going to school, I don't think it was until much later in my education that I was making the revenue that made it a more serious consideration, but also that I started to realize I perhaps wasn't cut for the path that the world expected me to take, right? This, like I said, corporate ladder path. And instead, maybe it was meant for something else. So entered college with a big question mark. Would I ever be an entrepreneur? I don't know that I was brave enough to admit it's what I wanted at the time. But I did know, I think in my heart, that I was seeing these alternative paths to success that hadn't been painted in the very narrow picture of what I expected growing up. And I was eager to uncover if it was meant for me. Wow. I love that so much. And to have that so early, did you feel a bit out of place in college, You know, going to UPenn? I didn't go there, but I have friends who've gone there. It's quite similar to Stanford, where Stanford maybe is a little bit entrepreneurial. So that was encouraged, to be honest. But there are still certain paths, even within the entrepreneurial world. It was like, you're going to go and get VC money if you're going to be an entrepreneur and do it one way. You're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a lawyer. You're going to go into tech. Like There are still these traditional paths that we all talked about and did the interviews. And so I can imagine that you're in this environment where everyone has this particular path, but yours is different or it feels different. Can you tell us a little bit about that time? I love that question because I've never been asked that question, but I was definitely the oddball out. There is no doubt looking back, I mean, gosh, I was in a sorority at Penn, which anyone who has been in a sorority at Penn, it's not like Bama talk. If you're on TikTok and you've seen Alabama sorority rush, we're not talking about that. It's like a room full of nerds that all want to have friends. That's what, again, speaking as a nerd, okay, it's not a criticism on Penn's Greek system, but it was much more in alignment with that. So I was in my sorority and I remember, you know, on the weekends, instead of going to parties, I was taking the train home to photograph weddings every single weekend, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. I was doing over $100,000 in revenue by my junior, senior year of college. And that's a lot of weddings. I mean, it's a full-time job on top of going to school full-time. And so in that sense, yes, I was already sort of set apart from the standpoint of not even being on campus all the time, working off campus, building relationships with folks that were much older than me because I was trying to network in my industry. And a lot of those professionals were you know, already in their 20s, 30s. And so, you know, I made friends with photographers in Philly and I would hang out with my college friends during the week. And then sometimes I'd go out and meet up with people. And I couldn't even, gosh, I remember I would go to like networking events and I wasn't old enough to order a drink. You know, like I do remember that. But at the same time, you know, to be really honest, I needed to make money. I came from a family where I was supporting my own way through my education and supporting my family in a multitude of ways. Again, single mom, and it was her, my sister, and I all growing up. And so, you know, anything I couldn't pay for in regards to my tuition, I put into a student loan. And I don't think I had the same luxury that a lot of other students had where I went to school. Not all. There were a lot of us on financial aid. There were a lot of folks that were first generation. I can't say that. You know, my mom went to Penn. I was legacy in that sense. But I think that I had a little bit of an undercurrent and drive to prove myself. And I was a very, very hard worker. And so 
I always felt like I had one foot in, one foot out. That's actually been a common theme in my entire existence as we get deeper into my story. But I've always been the girl with a foot in one world, a foot in another world, and a desire to belong. And always sort of feeling, you know, perhaps like maybe I don't, but because of that, also desiring to build spaces where I can help people to find their footing, to find where they belong. Yeah. Wow. I love that. You know, you talked about creating spaces where people feel like they belong. So can you tell us about that pivot to that journey? So you're doing full-time photography and then you make another pivot. Is that correct? Yes. I'm like the queen of pivots, friends. I'm the <laughs> queen of pivots. So yes, I'm doing photography. I get to my senior year and the end of senior year where you kind of have to make that decision. You know, are you going to go through a recruitment process, go work at a company, you know, apply for jobs, go through interviews or not? And I ultimately decided not to. My business had really grown throughout college. And I say I took it full time. I was already working full time. I just stopped going to school essentially once I got the diploma and graduated. And that was a really rude awakening, you know, leaving behind that built-in community, leaving behind that sense of routine, bumping into people, seeing folks day to day and going towards what a lot of solopreneurs experience, a lot of remote workers now, you know, in this kind of post-pandemic era experience and at the time was not as common, is that loneliness. You know, that true deep loneliness of waking up, staring at a computer nearly all day every day and then going to bed by yourself in your apartment over and over and over again with very little interaction. It was like whiplash in a sense. And so my desire to belong, I think, and that loneliness combined really broke me, you know, a couple of years out of college. And I recognized that an additional layer of that was the competition that was incredibly fierce in a saturated market in the wedding and event space where I was particularly working. But it's a very common experience amongst entrepreneurs, the sense of, you know, fierce competition and comparison. And we even we've talked about it on my show. And it's yeah. very real, right? It's it's yeah. a very real part of it. And so I hit a breaking point. I hit a breaking point where I realized that I could not continue to do this for the rest of my life if it was going to always be this lonely, this isolating. And I had to change. Something had to change. And that was a moment where my pivot, as we're talking about it, really happened, where it really began. Because instead of continuing to just suffer in silence and suffer while scrolling through social media, feeling alone, feeling like I was comparing myself to others, I started opening up about it, being honest about it, talking about it, asking why you know we couldn't get together and support each other, asking why business had to be this way, why it had to be cutthroat, it had to be tear others down, it had to be you know, a certain way in my space. And I found a group of people that wanted to see change too. And so, you know, in the early spring of 2015, I co-founded a community called the Rising Tide Society. And the idea at the time was very simple. It was second Tuesday of every month, we're going to get together for coffee. You know, you can come in as competitors, but you check your ego and your competition at the door. And from the moment that we sit down, we are truly community. It is community over competition. We are going to support each other. We're going to share what we know. We're going to stop holding our secrets so close to the chest and be open, be open to sharing and learning from one another. And it changed everything about my life. It started as that one coffee meetup in Annapolis where I'm sitting right now, my little hometown on the Bay. And very, very quickly, because folks started to see what we were doing here, it grew. It grew to, you know, five meetings up and down the East Coast in different cities led by other business owners just like me who saw these meetups and said, I want one. Like, I want that where I live. And so I said, great. You know, we created a playbook so that they could do that. They could host those meetups. And 
you know, it went from one to five to 10 to 15 to 20 to 100 to 150 to 200. I mean, the max point at which we had, we had over 400 meetings happening around the world every single month, led by volunteers for business owners to get together and to gather. And so I went from being, you know, a photographer and a business owner myself to being a community builder and a leader in this space, just fighting for more of that sentiment of community over competition, of cultivating belonging in a very cutthroat, very competitive industry. And that, you know, kind of transformed into the next several years of my life, transitioning then out of photography and into building community. And then eventually, we could talk about this in a second, you know, into the tech world through acquisition. Yeah. Ah, oh my gosh, so many pivots and I'm sure so many lessons learned. And I do just want to backtrack really quickly to the competitive nature that you were discussing and how you wanted to build community, which I think is so wonderful because I feel like that is applicable to so many different industries where people feel like they have to be competitive, but you really don't have to be. Like You can actually collaborate and be extremely successful. When you were talking about the competition, did you mean that in the photography business context or in the small business context? What were you specifically talking about? Both. You know, I experienced a lot of competition within the photography world, yes, but I think also just more maybe in a comparison aspect within the small business world. So, you know, the literal competition of a client's going to book one of us, right? And that fear, that scarcity mindset of, well, if it's not me, it's you. And then if I'm not winning, I'm losing. And I mean, I've become a huge, huge, huge advocate for healthy competition, like saying, yes, community over competition, but it doesn't mean we're not going to compete. We are going to compete, but there's a way to do it in a healthy way. My first book, Built to Belong, was about the science of competition and about, you know, how do we foster belonging in competitive spaces? Is it possible? The answer is yes, right? Can we do it at scale? The answer is also yes. And what's the outcome? What's the ROI? And there is ROI. It's not just a feel good, which for me is enough. There's also though business ROI. And so yes to the kind of more zoomed in lens of, you know, we could say apples to apples, photographer to photographer, but then also apples to oranges in the sense of, you know, somebody who's at chapter 15 while I'm at chapter two in my entrepreneurial journey, right? I'm graduating with student loans. And I mean, I don't know that I was ever really eating ramen, but like, you know, lean cuisine, okay? Okay, Like a glorified ramen, like we're, you know, one step up there for a couple of years out of college while I'm trying to get those loans down that season. And then, you know, Instagram was really flourishing at the time. and, And I lived through the you know, inception of Instagram, as many of us did, where it was curated feed only and everything was perfect and polished. There were no reels. There were no stories. There were no behind the scenes looks. Nobody was, you know, posting their bad days at that time. And so also I would say competition in the sense of, am I really good enough to do this? Other people seem to have it so much easier than me. Other people only win, right? Like I see my wins and my losses. You only see their wins. And so it was kind of a broad spectrum of what competition looked like in that season. And and for a lot of us, I feel like we experience a multitude of that, regardless of industry, regardless of, of where we are in our lives. But for me, it was a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That makes sense. It's interesting when you see that there's so many commonalities in all of these different industries and you're bringing people together across industries, you're building community. And how did you do that? That's my question. How do you build community? 
Yes. So there's a couple secrets in building community, and none of them are original at all to me, but I like to aggregate them in my own way. And so the first thing I like to say is a common denominator. In any strong community, you have a common denominator. We see them, you know, in traditional communities that might look like, you know, a faith-based community. They're sharing a common denominator of a religion or a faith-based practice. We see it within communities of, you know, culture or origin, geography. It really just boils down to do we share something? The act of sharing with another human being is a bond which can then lead to a cultivated community. But going further beyond that, and again, in, in the context of Rising Tide, it's it's small business ownership. We all within Rising Tide, you know, are from different places, geographically immensely diverse, different family backgrounds, different ethnicities, races, different socioeconomic status, different industries, you know, like photographers, but yes, also coaches, attorneys. We even do, we have small business attorneys in Rising Tide, like a multitude of industry type. But Community requires similarity in the sense of a common denominator. And so for us, that was small business ownership. And that was really a uniting force and uniting factor. Communities, though, also have some very core tenets, especially those that are healthy. You know, they are connected to an idea greater than themselves. This can be simple, it can be dynamic, it can be a massive vision of the future. It can be, again, like I said, I like pickles, you like pickles. We're part of a pickle connoisseur club. That is a community, right? But there's an idea that we're united by a love of the culinary arts in that way. Or in this case, for us, it was about fighting for the small business owner in an age of algorithms, an age of competition, You know, a moment in time where even now it feels as though big corporations consistently are making it harder for a lot of business owners to operate, but also in the same breath, we're entering a democratization of entrepreneurship like we've never seen this modern renaissance coming out of a, a pandemic era. And so just even now, like the shared struggle of trying to run a business, the shared hope of what it could mean for you and your family and the legacy you could leave. It also, though, requires members to connect to one another. You know, I often say that in the current world, it's kind of my hot take where you'll see a lot of content creators talk about their audience as a community, but it's not. Very often it's not. Not always. There are exceptions to that rule. There are true exceptions to that rule. But a core tenet of a community is that members gain value from one another, not just from their leader and not just from the idea. So there's actual value created because they are side by side with one another, such that if the leader went away or, you know, they still continue on even without that leader, an audience relies on the leader in order to, you know, have a point of connection and commonality. And so there's nuance there, but community really is strongest when the members have access to one another, they support one another, and they create value amongst themselves. But good leader, good idea, good members that support one another. And it's a living organism, which is the last thing that I'll say too. You know, communities have to be growing and changing in order to be alive when you have homogeny, when you have stagnation, when you have a lack of innovation or willingness to change or openness to feedback, communities die. Like any organism, it, it's poisonous to a community. And it's absolutely critical that in any community we're a part of, that there is, you know, respect amongst the members, that there is, I like to say, you know, we don't all have to agree on everything, but we have to agree on being respectful, you know, upholding values that are we share in common, honoring that common denominator and really uh, allowing it to unite us. Things like that are really important within community. But 
communities all look different. They can be, you know, deeply entrenched to our identity. They can be more broad and superficial. Like I mentioned the pickle example in my book, Built to Belong, I talk about just like a multitude of very bizarre Facebook groups that exist that you probably would have no idea are even real things, you know, but it can take a lot of shapes and forms. But I do think the core is a leader, a good idea, you know, that transcends the actual act of meeting something deeper. It can be values, it can be anything. And then members that are connected to one another, um, a living organism and that common denominator. I love that framework so much. And I think that that last part, that connection to one another and for all of the members, I think that's so key. And I think one thing that you do so well is you build these connections based on vulnerability. You are a storyteller. You share your story. And I want my listeners to know all about your inspirational story. And so while you're building Rising Tide, you're building this huge community, simultaneously, you are going through some personal challenges. You have this amazing book called Gutsy. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Whew. I mean, gosh, if only we had all day, because there are a multitude of directions to take this question in. What I will say in regards to the personal challenges you know, you're right. I am building this empire. Rising Tide is exploding. We get acquired by a startup, HoneyBook, out in San Francisco. In a professional sense, life is going incredibly well. And yet, I'm diagnosed with a benign brain tumor in that time period as well. I am terrified and I keep it completely private. We talk about vulnerability. That was not my era of vulnerability, so to speak. That was my era of fear and allowing fear to really drive me to be afraid of opening up about that diagnosis, about the fact that my tumor was located right behind where my two optic nerves cross, which you know comes with a risk of waking up blind, of that tumor growing and pressing on the optic chiasm and you losing your vision overnight. And remember what I said my career was at the time. I'm still transitioning out of it, but I'm a photographer. And so to lose my vision would be the loss of my job and everything I had spent years cultivating. I you know, go on several years of not sharing about it, hiding that diagnosis, also knowing that that diagnosis came with you know, infertility as a part of it because my tumor was located in a hormonal center of the brain. And so, you know, I was facing kind of that reality too as a newlywed. And so a lot of struggle emotionally, physically, kind of leading to a head, kind of hitting that inflection point in 2017 when I got a new medical team after moving to San Francisco post-acquisition of Rising Tide and joining the HoneyBook team at their headquarters in SF in the Bay Area. And my new, you know, neuro team decided that surgery was my best option, that we had kind of been operating on a wait and see model of, you know, let's just make sure it's not growing, it's not a critical situation. And so therefore, we'll just keep watching and waiting, watching and waiting. And I got this new team and they do these surgeries more frequently. They're more comfortable doing this, this type of brain surgery. And they gave me different advice. They said, look, if you want the best chance at you know, being able to pursue fertility treatment, for example, which up until that point I was not allowed to do, if you want the best chance at quality of life, reduced migraines, better, you know, potential outcome overall, things like that, then we got to do this surgery. And so in 2017, that that was a, a real inflection point for me in my life. Professionally, I was at the peak of my career and personally, I was about to enter the hardest season. I went through brain surgery and I think I realized amidst that moment that the vulnerability I was so afraid of, the opening up, the, the very things that I was terrified to do in a public sense were no longer an option because 
that surgery very much was an unknown. I didn't know who I would be on the other side of it. I didn't know if the many complications they tell you about before that procedure, you know, would be my actual lived experience and not just a statistic. And so I did for the first time in my entire life open up about my diagnosis. And I shared publicly with our community, which at the time was about 50,000 people, um, business owners, and, you know, told them what was going on, told them I was going to need to be, you know, on disability afterwards to recover. And instead of being met with everything that I feared from judgment, criticism, to unwarranted advice, to, you know, pity, I was met with sort of a reciprocal vulnerability from so many people. I was met with stories of courage and bravery and encouragement and empowerment and love and prayer and an all multitude of faith practices. And like just I was met with love and it changed me. It really changed me, not just how I viewed storytelling and the power of honesty, right? Showing up and saying, I'm flawed. I'm imperfect. I have this going on in my life and it's messy and I don't know what's going to happen and I'm not going to wait till there's a bow tied around it and I can speak from a place of full retrospective perfection where I can kind of change the narrative. I'm going to tell you about it as I'm going through it and I'm going to invite you into this messy season and I'm going to know that some of you aren't going to like it, right? And some it's not going to be for you and that's okay, but I'm going to show up honestly because at that point I had no other choice. And in doing so, it changed everything for me. So I go through surgery. I recover. There are complications with surgery, but I you know, continue forward in healing. I am six years now past brain surgery. And I won't fast forward too quickly, but I'll have to say I am healthy. I am well. I still struggle with certain things as a result of it, but it was the right decision at the end of the day, both to share, to be open, and to go through it. That was happening, you know, behind the scenes, that experience. And then shortly thereafter, you know, six months after I had been told by my neurosurgeon that we could start with a reproductive endocrinologist, which essentially means we could start fertility treatment six months after if everything looked well. And six months and one day after my brain surgery, I'm walking in to the UCSF fertility clinic and, you know, from there was able to conceive my son and through IVF was able to have a second baby, my daughter who's turning two. But all of those journeys stopped being private for me. All of those journeys became something that I shared with my community, that I walked through more openly and publicly, that I you know, actually became pretty comfortable with the criticism, pretty comfortable with people's opinions. And it helped to lead into why I wrote Gutsy. You, know, you mentioned the book kind of at the outset of this question. I really think that it revealed to me the dynamic nature in which courage manifests in our lives, that in some seasons, courage might look like bungee jumping off a mountain, and in other seasons, courage might look like getting out of bed in the morning, and that all of us are navigating a difficult journey. All of us are going through something hard. All of us are facing battles that the world will never see. And just because the world does not see it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't require us to be gutsy and to be brave and to have courage. And that oftentimes, just by recognizing that courage within ourselves, just by giving ourselves the pat on the back of saying, you showed up today, you might not have wanted to. It might have been hard. You had that difficult conversation that you have been dreading. You chose to ask for help in a moment where you really needed it. You fought back against a stigma that has held you back from speaking out about mental health, for example, or you you know, broke up with somebody. 
It's been time for a long time and you did the thing that that you knew it would break your heart, but you knew you needed to do it, whatever it is. I think I realized that I could be brave, that I was brave and that in leaning into that courage, I had the potential to change every aspect of my life. Thank you for listening to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. Remember to share the podcast with friends and family. And my hope is that these stories help you navigate your No Straight Path journey. If this content is adding value to your life, and I hope it is, please take a few minutes out of your day to rate the show and write a review. You can click the link in the show notes to write a review. It helps other listeners find the show, and I just really appreciate it. Have a lovely week, embrace the journey, and remember... You're not alone.